Hebrews chapter 8, we're continuing our study on the book of Hebrews, and we're talking here, as we started last week, about the tent of the Old Testament. I'm not going to read very much up front here, because I'm going to be appealing to quite a bit of scripture as we're going along. I read a lot last week, and as I said, I'm going to be kind of picking apart these uh, chapter 8 and 9, and even chapter 10. I'm not going to go in a strict chronological way, so I'm just going to read the, the opening statement here about the tent, and then we'll dive in. Now, the main point in what we are saying, the author says, is this. We have such a high priest, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, one who was seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tent of the Lord. That's the concept that we're chewing on here, the true tent of the Lord. And not that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. If you look down again at verse... The Levitical priests offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly one. It's a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. We're going to talk about that tent that was a sketch and a shadow uh, of the tent to come, and we're going to talk about several ways in which that tent prefigures New Testament tabernacles of the Lord. First, let's, let's just say a word of prayer here that God would cover this message. Father, we together ask you that you would continue the anointing that began here with uh, the worship and the praise. You inhabit the praises of your people. You also honor your word going forth. And Lord, we don't want to be just the people who come and enter into worship with you and get excited, though that's crucial. But we also, Lord God, need to be a people who fall in love with your word and are open to your word, and hear your word, and are challenged by your word, and are transformed by your word. So, Lord, do that. Do it, Lord. Uh, we, we relax in your sufficiency and your power to pull off what you promise, and that is that the word will never return void. And Lord, I, I can't do that with... with I, I'm so utterly aware of how impotent words are to do anything of value unless your spirit is electrifying them and causing them to find fertile ground in our hearts. So Holy Spirit, be moving here as I'm preaching. And change us and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Good. Could you give me a little more monitor here? Is that possible? Anything you can do this uh, so I can... Otherwise I adjust my own volume according to what I don't hear. What we saw last week was this. The Lord in the Old Testament uh, gave Moses a command to put together a tent, to have a tent, and he was going to dwell in that tent. This tent was called uh, the Mishkan, which meant God's Shekinah glory. Yeah, you don't have to overdo it. but God's Shekinah glory, his, his imminent presence, dwelling as a neighbor among the people. That's what the, the word combines, God's presence with neighbor, Mishkan or Mishkan, if you really want to get the Hebrew. Um, so here God was dwelling as a neighbor. Now the significance of all that is this. We were talking last week about covenant. God's purpose for creating the world was to have a loving relationship with the world, a relationship with the people of this world, to anyone who would freely say yes. God wants to have a relationship with them that in, a, in its own kind of way mirrors the intensity of the love that God is throughout eternity. It's the Trinity turned outward. God is throughout eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in loving union, and now he creates creatures, us, whom he wants to enter into this loving relationship that will mirror in its own way the, the love that reflects God. 
He also then wants that loving relationship that he is and that loving relationship that he mirrors towards us to begin to be mirrored towards one another. And the word that sums all of this up is covenant. Because love without responsibility, love without understanding, love without agreement is impossible. A covenant is simply a contract that leads to a relationship, and, and we'll be talking about that more in the future. It's simply an understanding of the moral responsibility that each partner takes on as they enter into a loving relationship with one another. It would involve an agreement to stipulations, an agreement to the conditions of the covenant. It would be sealed by a number of different ways in ancient cultures. You could take off your cloak, which was your tribal identity, and give it to the, to the person that you were entering into a covenant with, and they'd give you their cloak, and that showed that now your identities were being wrapped up. You don't lose your identity, but your identity now gets fused with the other person. And the goal of the whole thing is to have some kind of dwelling together and understanding a loving dwelling together. And so it is with God's desire to have a covenantal relationship with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. In fact, his aim, his aim is to have an infinitely intense relationship with his people. Because only that kind of relationship would reflect the intensity of the love which he is throughout eternity. Paul uses the analogy of a husband and a wife who are one in flesh and body and spirit as the analogy of the kind of union that God wants with his church. God is not a God because he's a God of infinitely intense love. He does not ever settle for an acquaintance relationship. An acquaintance, casual sort of relationship means nothing to God because it reflects nothing of God. When God wants a relationship, he wants it all the way. And so the point of the covenant is to, have, to, to dwell, God to dwell with us and us to dwell with God. And that's why God, here in the Old Testament, takes the first baby step in that direction. With the people with whom he's establishing a covenant, he dwells in a tent. He dwells in a tent because part of the covenant is, is I take what is yours and make it mine, and you take what is mine and make it yours. And so the people of Israel, they're nomads who live in tents. And so the Lord says, I will live in a tent. I want to be on your level. I want to enter in to your lives. So he comes down to our level. Of course, God can't be contained in a pup tent. But he, he's showing something symbolically by entering into that. He's on our level. He's a God who does not delight in the big, the wild, the super fantastic display. He's a God who shows forth his glory by coming down to the level of the ordinary. And for a God whose love is showed by coming down to the level of the ordinary, big, wild, colorful, bammy stuff gets in the way. You follow what I'm saying here? Now, someone asked me last week, and this is a very good point, well, then why did God later on, when the children of Israel entered into the land of Canaan, why did God have this big tabernacle? Okay, this big temple, Solomon's temple. It was big wham, bow, splendid, exquisite stuff. Why did he have that? It's a very important point. And to answer that question is to answer this question. The question is, why did the author of Hebrews, when he's trying to give the divine teaching about the heavenly sanctuary, why did he go back to this little ordinary tent and, instead of Solomon's temple? Think about it. You'd think, you'd think that maybe the Solomon's temple would have just totally overshadowed in importance this little tiny tent that used to pick up and put down as they wandered throughout the desert. But the author goes back to the little tent. And there's a very profound reason for that. If you read the accounts carefully, I'm not going to turn there, we don't have the time, but if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, among other verses, 
The Lord says this to this prophet Nathan. He says, Nathan, go to David and ask David this question. Did I ever ask anybody, any of the leaders before, to build me a house made of cedar? In other words, a strong, sturdy, permanent house. I didn't. I was in a little tent uh, that, uh, that wandered in the wilderness as the people wandered in the wilderness. But you have put it in your heart to build this tabernacle. Now, the thing, was, the thing is this. God later on in 2 Kings chapter 16, is it 2 Kings chapter 16 or 2 Kings? No, 1 Kings chapter 6 verses 12 through 15. The Lord tells Solomon, you have, built, you have designed and planned this house. And if you walk in my covenant, I will dwell in that house. Okay, God met David and Solomon, who had it in their heart to build this edifice for God. They were living in a great luxurious palace, and they thought it was just wrong for God to live in this pup tent if they're living in this palace. So they put it in their heart to build this big temple. God meets them with that. That's on your heart. God will even bless that. He lays down the conditions of it. You know, I, I, your heart is right. I'm but what we need to see here, and it's so important, is this. God, that was a concession that God made. That was a concession. That wasn't God's first ideal, but God always meets us halfway. That's why we've got polygamy and concubines in the Old Testament. And God is always meeting people where they are at. But that wasn't God's ideal. God's ideal, as revealed in Hebrews 8, God's ideal is the little tent, the ordinary. Okay? As with today, I believe that God blesses churches even if their heart is towards building huge edifices that they want to glorify God with. But what is so important for us to see is that that is not God's ideal. God loves the down on earth, the ordinary, the eye-to-eye -eye level reality with his people. That's what glorifies God, not the big and the fantastic. So the author here goes back to the tent. And the tent now, this, this sanctuary in the Old Testament becomes the, the model, the copy, the prefiguration of later New Testament truths. Now, there's four different ways that the New Testament brings about a reality that fulfills this, the, the typology of this tent in the Old Testament. We're going to get to three of them. The fourth way is the one that the author in the, in, in the book of Hebrews here is talking about. But we're getting there. This is foundational stuff. It's important that we understand this, and I think you'll see why it's important here in a second. Three ways, then, we're going to talk this morning about how New Testament realities fulfill or offer up the thing which the Old Testament tent in the wilderness point towards. Reality number one, God wants to dwell with his people. And that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In the book of John, chapter 1, verse 14, it says this. The word, this word that was with God throughout eternity and this word that was God throughout eternity, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is the Greek word that, that, that is the corollary of tabernacle or to reside or to dwell. Literally, he's saying God became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled, resided with us. Chapter of the, the Gospel of John Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And the Jews misunderstood him. They thought he was talking about the temple that Solomon built. And they said, you couldn't ever rebuild that in three days. But then John tells us, but Jesus was talking about his own body as a temple. His body is like the walking tent in which God dwells. So that's why Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says this. The Father was pleased to put his whole fullness in Jesus Christ. His whole fullness. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says this, that the fullness, Roma in Greek, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in bodily form. 
Jesus Christ was the walking tabernacle of God here on earth, and in that way was a fulfillment of the reality that the Old Testament tent was pointing towards. Here's why that's significant. The goal of covenant is to dwell with one another, okay? To have a loving relationship in which you dwell with one another, in which you take what is yours and give to the other, and the other takes what is theirs and, and gives to you. That's the kind of relationship God wants. The question is this. The question is this, and if you understand it, you'll see why. The doctrine of the deity of Christ is the center of Christianity. To call him a prophet or a great man or anything else is to totally misunderstand who Jesus is and totally misunderstand who God is for this reason. The question is, how far, to what extreme, is God going to take this covenant stuff? Okay, he wants a covenant with us, and a covenant is, is, is residing with another. How far is gonna, God going to push that? Covenant is dwelling together. How far is God going to push that? A covenant involves sacrifice. How far is God going to push that? How intense, how passionate is his love? Just what does he mean when he says he wants to enter, come down to our level? And what the, the New Testament answer to that is that he, he, he wants to go all the way. And there is no limit to the extent to which God wants to enter into an abandoned, self-sacrificial relationship with his people. And that's what the whole point of the incarnation is getting at. This is an act of covenant. In fact, this is the act of covenant. This is God unilaterally setting aside his divine prerogatives and emptying out himself to pour himself into our humanity. And he takes what is ours and he makes it his own so that he could take what is his and make it our own. He wants us to be blessed with eternity, blessed with his blessing, participating in his love. So to make that happen, he, out of covenantal fidelity, takes our humanity, all of our humanity, and resides in it, makes it his house. And then later on he takes our sin, and then he takes our condemnation. He takes our damnation on himself. Why? So that we could take what is his and enter into and fulfill the loving covenant that God wants with his people. If you, anyone who thinks that Jesus Christ is less than fully God does not understand God and therefore doesn't understand the relationship that God wants with us. It doesn't say that God so loved the world he gave us a set of rules to walk by. It doesn't say that God so loved the world he sent us the Quran or God so loved the world he gave us a good prophet. It doesn't even say that God so loved the world he sent his best archangel. That would have been great, wouldn't it? No, but God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He gave all that he had. This is God himself coming upon earth and residing with us, tabernacling with us. You talk about seeing eye to eye, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is fully man. God, this is the new mushkan, mushkan, Shekinah glory, the permanent Shekinah glory dwelling with us as a neighbor. God's glory is robed in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. It's also the new Odell Mayod, the new meeting place. Okay, the ten in the Old Testament. The purpose for it, it was called Odell Mayod, which simply means meeting place. This is where, if you want to know what God was thinking, you went to the tent. Because this is where you offered up the sacrifices. This is where on the Day of Atonement, once a year, you'd offer up your sacrifice. Here's where you're going to find out what God thinks about you. If he accepts your sacrifice, everything's fine. If he doesn't, you're in deep trouble. But you don't go and ask the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Jebusites or the Termites what, anything about what God is. If you want to know what God is, don't check the weather, don't, you know, you look at the tent. That's the main vehicle of understanding who God is. And now we find that the presence of God, the fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. 
and he's the new mushkan, the permanent mushkan, the permanent place where God is our neighbor. He's also the permanent place where we meet God. And so Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, no man goes to the Father except through me. This is, the, this is the dwelling place. This is the place where God's going to tell you what he thinks about you. That's why he tells Philip three verses later in John 14. If you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? I wonder what, I wonder what God looks like. What does he think about? What, what, what is his attitude towards me? Don't look over here. Don't look at the way your father treated you or the way your mother treated you or the way life has treated you or the way the circumstances right now are treating you. We do this so much. The devil has a heyday with us. Because we try to interpret not getting a parking space as God not having favor on us. Or a person comes down with a stomachache, well, God must be mad at me. Or worse yet, you get cancer or your kids rebel and you interpret it as God just doesn't have favor towards you. And there may be some cause and effect things that you got to deal with there, but what you got to know here is this. To understand what God thinks about you, if you can in faith, with faith, with loving trust and fidelity, look to Jesus Christ. And there, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And say, there's God dying for me so that I might have a relationship with him. Then you've got to know this. God is there dying. That's his mind. That's what he thinks about you. You are in Christ. Jesus Christ is the intersecting point of God and man. Don't let any other thing be an intersecting point. Reject or even rebuke if you have to. The upbringing and the other things that you might interpret God with. And keep your heart to Jesus Christ. He's the, new, he's the permanent mashkan. He's the permanent Odell Mayod. But then God ups the ante a little bit even further. This is God dwelling with us. And now we hear, and this is my second point, that God wants to dwell in us. He wants to dwell in us. He's the presence of God with us. And now he wants to dwell in us. He's the Mashkan towards us. God is our neighbor. But now we're learning, we'll learn here in a second, that God wants to dwell in us so that we will be a mashkan to others. God is residing in us so that he may be a neighbor to others. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 if you have your Bibles. If you don't, you can just kind of tune in and listen. I promise I will not distort it. Here we go. Ah, I, I love that water. It tastes so good to my body right now. Ah, it is water. Okay. He thought he's enjoying that too much. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Okay, that's, that's what God's looking for. I want, one, I want that marital, you know, he's getting a bride. Okay? I don't want to push the analogy too far, but he's getting a bride. He wants oneness with us. Okay? And when you unite yourself to the Lord, you're one spirit with him. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun, for verse 18, fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the, against the body itself. 20-second teaching here. The Bible tells us that there is a spiritual component to sexual relationships. Uh, when you unite yourself with another person, something goes on there that is more than just a physical. What goes on there, if there is not a covenantal marriage relationship, is, is in some ways more damaging than other kinds of sin. Okay, I'm not trying to get a totem pole of sin here, but the Bible really, Paul points to fornication, where you're taking your body, which is owned by God, and now you're using it towards immorality, and you're uniting yourself. That's the thing. We're united with the Lord, and now you're uniting yourself with another in a way that's in direct violation to your relationship with the Lord. You are, in effect, committing adultery. And that's big. Just thought I'd throw that out there because our, cult our culture tends to think, yeah, it's natural. Shun fornication, da-da-da-da. Verse 19. Or do you not know 
that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own. You don't own your body. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The thing is this, your body now is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me say a, a little, another preliminary word about this. I've heard this verse quoted millions of times, at least a dozen, but you know, hyperbole is the art of speaking, uh, many times about health issues, okay? Uh, you know, oh, you should get enough sleep. After all, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you shouldn't overeat. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, you should, people who smoke, oh, they're, they're polluting the body of, of, of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and things like that. That is a relatively recent phenomenon. If you look at the Bible, and I, you know, don't prejudge what I'm saying here, okay? Oh, is he condoning smoking? I'm not getting into that. But the point here is this. For la re in recent times, we've gotten more health conscious, and we use this verse as a way of sort of pinpointing certain sins, okay? And flagging them and saying, aha, see, you're playing the Holy Spirit. This has not, the Bible has nothing to solve. Health is not the issue. The external trappings of the body are not what make or defile the, the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Arnold Schwarzenegger, or whoever's the new muscle man out there, isn't closer to God because they got this wonderful, you know, phys <laughs> the, the physical body. You know, or, or Mr., you know, or Simons, whatever that guy is. Oh, come on, ladies, you can do it. You know, <laughs> yeah, whatever they do, I don't know. Oh, tell me out, tell me out, tell me out. Okay, look at Health is good. Nobody accused me of not wanting to be healthy. Although I don't exercise myself anymore, I used to, and I should get some points for that. But health is great. Health is good. Everyone should do it. You know, fine, wonderful. But the Bible, there's one verse about physical exercise in the Bible, and it says it doesn't do a whole lot of good. <laughs> okay? That's not a real big encouragement there. Spirit, physical exercise profits little. That's not the issue. Jesus says it's not what goes into the body that defiles you. It's what comes out. Because what comes out of the Bible, the, the body reflects the heart. This issue of being a temple of the Holy Spirit isn't about having a great body shape or being physically fit or not physically fit. That's not the issue. Now, there may be other things that you should think about in terms of how much you eat and whether you smoke or how much you smoke and things like that. Things about being free in Christ and not being under bondage. Those principles might apply. But this verse is concerned with our relationship with the Lord, okay? And what matters there is the heart. God wants to dwell in our heart, and when he dwells in our heart, our bodies become the new mashkan, the new odel mayo, the tent of meeting, because here people meet Jesus Christ. There's a powerful truth in this. J Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 17, says, th says this. I'm going to send you another comforter that the world does not know and the world cannot see. But you know him... For he dwells with you and shall be in you. The presence of God dwells with you in Jesus Christ, but it shall be in you. And then in John chapter, there's a stand here, and I can't see what time it is. Oh my goodness. Okay. Tell the uh, nursery we're going to be 26 seconds over. Jesus says this in, in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 23. He says, if anyone hears my word and obeys my word. In other words, if anyone keeps covenant with me, I and my Father will come and make our abode, our dwelling place, in them. Here's the teaching. Lord, help me to say it in as few words as possible. The Holy Spirit isn't one-third of God. The Holy Spirit is God. And where God is, God is. You can't slice God up like some cherry pie. Okay, and sometimes when people think that way. The Father and the Son are present in the Holy Spirit when He comes and dwells with us. 
And the Bible teaching then is this. God, not a third of God, God comes and dwells in us. God, capital G, comes and, and dwells in us. I'm talking the creator, you guys. The creator of this universe, when we enter, this is how close he wants to get with us, the creator of the universe, when we say yes, when we say take our life, when we take off our coat and give it to him, he takes off his coat and gives it to us, and now we see how radical is the union, the love, the, the relationship he wants with us. He comes and dwells inside of us, praise the Lord. God dwells in his people. The God who was on Mount Sinai dwells in you. If you're a believer, say, God dwells in me. God, God dwells in me. Got it? We're Amen. The God who parted the Red Sea. We're talking the God who throws the thunderbolts. We're talking the God who, did, who slayed the Egyptians. We're talking the God who slayed. He comes and takes residence in us. And now we are a walking, talking, tent, tabernacle of our Lord Jesus Christ. The presence of... You are holy ground. You are holy ground. And if we own that, if you get that, if it gets in the noggin and you begin to live in that, there is nothing on earth that could make a bigger difference than that. You're walking around with the awareness that the power that brought existence into being is inside of you. It is just huge. There's got to be another word that's better than huge. It makes all the difference in the world. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. I've got to make it sure. John chapter 15, Jesus says this. Abide in me. Verse 5. Verse 4 and 5. 15, verse 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you, and you shall bear much fruit. Abide in me and I in you, and you shall bear much fruit. The branch that is not, the vine that's not connected to the branch can bear, can, can, cannot bear fruit. But if it abides on the branch, it will bear much fruit. And herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and are my disciples. The point of that is this, folks. God abides in us. And now he says we are to abide in him. In other words, what he did to us, what he did to us, we are not to do to him. That's the essence of covenant. He gave up all and now dwells within us. He now says, now we are to dwell in him. And when we dwell in him, when we dwell in him as he, as he abides in us, there is much fruit. Much fruit comes as a result of this. All right? Now what is it to abide in Christ? It is simply this. You take your spirit and you choose him permanently. You take your mind, you submit it to him permanently. You live, we, the Bible says we are in Christ. We must make the decision on an ongoing basis to, to, make, to, to think in Christ, to will in Christ, to have aspirations in Christ, to make Christ a part of our everyday life. The word dwell or abide here, God abides in us and we're to abide in him. It's the antithesis, the opposite of the concept of visit. All right? Don't visit God. He doesn't visit you. He just to visit him. If you are a visitor of the kingdom, you're not going to bear any fruit. Don't visit God on Sunday morning. Don't visit God even maybe once or twice, five minutes throughout the week. Live in Jesus Christ. Abide in Jesus Christ. He's saying, pack your bags and come and move in. That, dwell there. Live there. This is your home. You are in Christ. And now I'll take every part of your being and lay it at the foot of the cross and make it his because that's what he has done for yours. And then you bear much fruit. When that happens, you bear much fruit. We sometimes hear, you know, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, and you'll bear much fruit. So we go, oh, I better start bearing fruit. No, you better start abiding in Christ. You see, we, get to, we put the cart before the horse. And people didn't try to crank out fruit. 
They think that sanctification is some sort of self-effort achievement. I gotta try to be more holy. I gotta try to be more loving. I gotta try to be this and da da da. da. You know. No, what you gotta try to do is hang on to Jesus Christ. If seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all this other stuff's gonna be added unto you. Just grab onto the cross, hunger for Jesus Christ, long to be close to Him, and then see as you pour out yourself to Him, now His inner abiding presence begins to do His work in you. He begins to change your heart. Okay, that's the core. You begin to desire things you didn't desire before. You begin to love things you didn't love before. You cannot, on your willpower, make yourself a loving person. You can, on your own willpower, make yourself act more loving. But you cannot, on your own, make yourself be a more loving person. What you can do is yield to the presence of God inside of you and hunger and thirst after His righteousness, and then He begins to create it in you. And now you become a more loving person, which then leads forth to the fruit of loving behavior. But it happens on the inner heart. Sanctification is about yielding to God, His presence. The power is so sad that it resides within us, and we spend so much time, wasted time, trying to crank it out on our puny little free wills. You know, oh, you're going to try, try, try. No, yield to the power within you and let Him entrust Him to do His transforming work. Now, I'm not talking about a passive thing. Let's sit on the couch and just, oh, God, whenever you're ready, change me. No, because you're, you have to be enter, abiding in Him. That's up to you. Abide in Him. He abides in you, and now you shall bear much fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. He says it. You can do a lot of stuff, but in kingdom terms, it's nothing. But if you abide in him, dwell in him, you bear much fruit. That's the second way. We are a walking, talking tent of God, God Almighty. Think about it, chew on it, put it in your brain. The third way, and I'll get to it closely, but I wish I didn't have to get to it closely. We'll have to pick it up next week. But it's this. Paul says in the book of Ephesians, Book of Ephesians. See, God, God is our neighbor, Mashchan. He dwells in Jesus Christ towards us. Now he dwells in us, and we become a Mashchan to other people. He dwells in a, with us, he dwells in us, and now what we're going to learn here in very quick order is he wants to dwell between us. Holy Spirit, just I'm going to say this in way too short terms, but anoint it. He says this in the, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Why am I standing like I'm out for a race? Look at that, I'm like a... Hot 24, 42, hot, hot! Okay. okay. So then, verse 19, chapter 2, book of Ephesians. So then you are... No, what's it? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. <laughs> Contrary to how we sometimes look. We're no longer strangers and aliens. To each other or to God. Because of what Jesus did. But you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. In other words... Folks, believers, we're family. We're family. Get used to that idea. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Okay, there's a building that's being built, folks. Jesus Christ is the foundation, and we're being built upon it. In him, in Christ, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into the dwelling place of God. You are built together spiritually as a dwelling place of God. You are joined together, he says, into the building place of God. Here's the thing. There's a third way in which God tabernacles on the earth. He tabernacles between believers as we become, in our relationship with one another, the place where God lives. When believers get together like bricks are on brick, we become a building. And in that building, brick upon brick, God lives. Where there is no brick upon brick, God doesn't live there. 
He lives when Christians are brick upon brick, as we're jointly fit together, one upon one, okay, as we each have our niche, we play a role in the whole edifice that God is building. Point of this whole thing, we have got to be related. We have got to be interconnected. We have got to be living life together. Lone Ranger Christians are just out of the will of God. I can say it that plainly. If you're on your own and you're isolated, you're not part of the body, you're dismembered, and you're not part of the building, you're a brick all by yourself. I used to be a masonry laborer before I, when I was going through grad school. It was the scummiest job I've ever had. And the people I worked with were the scummiest people I've ever worked with. It was just a nightmare, and it was hard, but it paid very well, so I did it. And here's the thing. I mean, these masons ordered me around, I need some more bricks, I need some more mortar. My mud is all, you know, my cement, you got to stir it up. And they just treated you like... You know, and it was just, okay, but it paid well. So, hey, pay me enough, I'll do it. Here's the thing, I'd show up in the morning. My job was to load all the bricks on these scaffolds so that, that these masons could just do their job. I'd go there in the morning and I'd look at this pile of bricks that the truck just delivered. And I, oh man, nothing defeats the heart like realizing that before the day's over, all of this has got to be eight floors up there. And it's like, oh my gosh. But the reason why is because the bricks, all the bricks are there, but it doesn't do anything until somebody starts putting them brick upon brick. All the bricks of a building are not a building until they're jointly fit together. Now, every one of these bricks are good. They're shiny. They're wonderful. But a ton of bricks together don't make a building in which anyone can live. And a ton of Christians who are just there don't make anything in which God lives. You following me here? When we are disconnected, when we are not... These masons have to sometimes refine the brick to smooth it off so they can get together. They'll rub the bricks together all the time to make sure there's no cracks, whatever. And sometimes I'm sure these bricks kind of get hurt by that because it's not fun to get sandpapered. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. And when we get together, when we begin to rub together, when there's mortar of the Holy Spirit between us, now we are becoming a spiritual building in which God dwells. God dwells with us in Jesus Christ. God dwells in us in the Holy Spirit. And now what we got to see is that God dwells between us. When we begin to have a relationship with one another that begins to mirror what God is like, God lives there. God lives when, when, when there are people who care about other people. When you visit someone in the hospital, God's living in that act. When we have, bring over groceries to some people who are hungry, uh, God lives in that act. When, when Christians get together and they help each other move or they help each other clean up their house or they help each other with financial things or they help raise each other's kids, when we get together and we pray or when we get together and read the Bible or when we go out to movies together or when we take communion together, where we are, God lives there. When you're your bedside Baptist watching a TV evangelist and don't know any other believer, you are not being the brick that God wanted you to be. Somebody say amen. Amen. This is where it's at. God's building together. Point of the whole thing. The covenant relationship between us and God has got to, got to, got to issue forth in a covenant relationship that we have with one another, where we begin to live out our life with one another. Thus Jesus prays, Father, I pray that they all may be one even as we are one. May our triune love begin to be modeled in them. Why? So that the world will know that you have sent me. How it's got to grieve the heart of God that the modern church focuses on buildings and pours all its God and all of its talents into buildings so that the world can see the building and they think that glorifies God. We're going to need a building someday, folks. In fact, sooner than later, two years ago would have been nice. But the point of it is this. I'm not against buildings. 
you need a place to meet. They do that. Use whatever's available. But we've got to understand that. That is not the church. The church is us. And not us as this conglomerate whole. Us as we are in covenantal relationships with one another. Caring for one another. Loving one another. God is glorified by that. Think of it this way. We are the church steeples that this world looks at. We are the stained glass windows that tell the story of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is as real to the world around us to the degree that he is real to us. And he's real to us to the degree that we are mirroring who he is towards one another, period. The challenge, praise God, amen. Thanks for agreeing. I'm closing with this. But I'm also known to be a compulsive liar, so what's that worth? Uh, No, I really am. But you guys, this is just, we're the tent as we're related together, as the mortar is on the mortar. That God lives between us, and that's the one that the world primarily sees. The challenge is this. The challenge is this, and then would the the team come up here? We're going to end with uh, singing this song, Draw Me Close. As we do it, you're free to leave. If you want to leave uh, or if you want to stay in worship, stay in worship. And if you want to come forward, come forward. Uh, if you're not a believer this morning, please become a believer. You, know, you need to do that. Uh, and, and accept Jesus Christ. It's so simple. Come forward. Do it. It's easy. At the end, here's the challenge. Number one, walk. Walk with the awareness that the Creator lives in you. The power of the resurrecting force that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives, lives within you. Learn to yield to Him. Okay? Let it do some good there. And secondly, if you, if you are not in covenantal relationships with others, you've got to be moving in that direction. Maybe you're, you know, visiting your, your church shopping. There's a time for that. Fine. But know this. Don't, don't let that become an addiction. Okay? And in our culture, it's an addiction. Sooner or later, and if it's this body, then do it. If it's another body, then do it there. But you've got to get plugged in. You've got to get plugged in. You've got to be meeting with people, reading the Bible, praying together living together, sharing life together. The church, we, we will help you do that. If you don't know people here on Sunday morning, call the church office. Ask for Sandra Unger. She's a person in charge of developing covenant communities. We'll do what we can to begin to plug you in and just start moving in that direction. These things take time, but don't be a lone brick out there. You weren't created for that, and you're going to miss out a whole lot of what God wants to do to you and through you if you do that. Father in heaven, make us a church. Father in heaven, bind us together. Father in heaven, build your temple with us, Lord God, between us. Thank you, Lord God, for investing your total being in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord God, for taking residence inside each one of us. Help us to yield to that. And then, Lord God, move us to begin to reflect your love toward yourself and then your love towards us by our love towards one another. Be glorified.